You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to Strange Familiars. I'm your host, Timothy Renner. If you've seen something strange, something paranormal, a cryptid like Bigfoot, or ghosts, UFOs, aliens, anything strange and paranormal, and you'd like to share your story, you can email us, strangefamiliarspodcast at gmail.com. Another way you can get us your story, if you have a shorter story, you can call us and leave a voicemail, 717-347-8554. If you get cut off, you can just call back and continue your message, 717-347-8554. Right now, as we're pretty backed up on interviews, that's the quickest way to get us your story. Tonight, I will be talking with Brother Richard, a Franciscan monk. That'll be coming up in a little bit. He will be talking about all these different aspects of the other as viewed through the contemplative Christian mystical tradition. It's a very, very interesting conversation. Before I get to that, I wanted to talk about Hellier Season 2, which is out. I don't know how many people watched Hellier Season 1. It's kind of a paranormal documentary series. Hellier Season 1 is pretty much everywhere at this point. It's on on all different platforms. Hellier Season 2 was released on Amazon Prime last week. It will be on other platforms soon. But a little secret I was keeping is my music, Wilderness Geist is used in Hellier 2. Because of this, I did a very special edition of my Wilderness Geist album 
with the original CD and an extra CD, a little hex book, a little book of different folk magic charms that I collected from various sources, including How to Protect Yourself from Goblins, which ties in with the Hellier theme there, and a wooden gifting coin that I made up with uh, some of my artwork on it. This all comes in a hand-stenciled bag with a rune stab on it, along with a piece of quartzite from Hex Hollow. These sold out almost immediately. As soon as Hellier was released, I did 50 copies originally. I had the parts to do 100. The first 50 sold out in about a day. The second 50 sold in another day. However, I did keep some back, so I might have a few extra copies. If you really, really want one, you can email me and get on a list. And if I have any extra, I will let you know. Strange Familiars Podcast at gmail.com, of course, is how you contact me. Due to some busyness in my personal life, I haven't even finished watching Hellier Season 2 yet. I'm still in the middle of it. It's gotten a lot of really great reviews, and so far, I like it even better than Season 1. So I'm excited to get to it, and I'll see if I can have Greg Newkirk, at least, if not some of the other Hellier folks on Strange Familiars, to talk about that in a little bit. But tonight, let's get to our talk with Brother Richard. Tonight we are talking with Brother Richard, who is a Franciscan monk. How are you doing, Brother Richard? I'm good. I'm good. It's good to talk to you. Good to be with you. I am super excited about this show. Uh, we've been talking a little bit via email and, and talking about some of these subjects, mm-hmm. and I'm just really, really excited to get, I guess, what you have called the sort of meditative Christian tradition as regards what I call the other. Sure, sure. Yeah, I'm happy to, to share wherever uh, wherever it overlaps or, or whatever whatever thoughts I can I can. Uh, bring forward from from the tradition to uh to maybe elucidate some of the some of the phenomena that's out there at least from our perspective anyway right well before we get started just out of curiosity what is life like for a monk in 2019 because i think we all have (laughs) you know we have all this we have the idea from you know watching various period movies and so forth you know what monks lives might have been like so so what's it like in 2019 well uh, i i suppose the basics have remained the same um in that it's it's a life that's divided equally between uh, prayer, meditative prayer, and uh, work, um, and and the work particularly for ourselves. I'm, I'm, I belong to a branch of the Franciscan order known as the Capuchins, um, and we were founded um, within the Franciscan tradition around about 1525. Uh, and the idea was to balance contemplative living with um, active service of our brothers and sisters. So, for example, um, the group of us that are here in Ireland, because that's where I'm speaking to you from, we would work uh, with the homeless, we work with the dying, uh, with those in prison, um, with also kind of parishes, parish work, um, general kind of pastoral outreach. And for myself, most of the work that I've been doing over the last uh, 15, 16 years or so has been sharing our contemplative tradition with those who would like to learn the Franciscan meditative path. So I belong to that group that was founded by St. Francis of Assisi. Most people know him as the, the animal man or the birds man, but, but the saint who was 
uh, very connected with nature and with the natural world. Uh, he lived from 1181 to 1226. And when he died, he left uh, an order behind him of, of brothers, um, also sisters, uh, women dedicated to the gospel of Christ and to the contemplative path. And, uh, and also many, many um, laymen and women who had decided to, to try and renew their living of Christian faith um, through his principles of simplicity, uh, joy, peace, etc. So that tradition stretches all the way back to then. And then today it's, it's incarnated in the various ways that I've, I've mentioned. I mean, what an amazing history to be able to pull from. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, whenever I, I, I'm privileged to, to speak to groups, I always say, you know, it's, it's, it's not about me that's standing in front of you. It, it's about allowing the tradition to breathe. So in that sense, um, you know, I, I, I belong to that Franciscan tradition that goes back to the um, uh, high Middle Ages. And then, but that itself was a renewal of monastic life, which went back to the very beginning of the church, about 100 years after Christ. And that in turn is built on the great um, Jewish mystical tradition that goes back to Abraham. So you're dealing with a tradition of about, you know, somewhere between four and five thousand years. And I suppose over over that amount of time, uh, various practitioners, teachers, holy men and women along the way have encountered the other in, in many, many ways uh, and, and have also you know, written about it and thought about it and and, and encountered it and, and communicated with it. So uh, in, in that sense, um, there's a lot of richness that I think a lot of the Western world nowadays is, is pretty much unaware of. Uh, and so one of the uh, main thrusts of the work of the Capuchins is, is to make that that tradition wider, uh, wider nor known and, and, and uh, to open up the doors of it to, to everybody who's interested. One of the things you mentioned, and, and I think this was maybe, it might have been in the first email you wrote to me. Sure. Where you, you said, you know, that this, the other, what I'm calling the other, that this, mm. uh, this appears in our tradition. And, mm. it's, and I, I want to tell you straight out, it's not all demons. So there's, mm. there's that subtlety of shades <laughs> there, I guess, that, that yes, sometimes yes. gets lost, I think, in, in modern Christianity. Yeah, well, I, I think... Um... I suppose let, let's 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 talk about post post enlightenment Christianity and I, I, I whenever I say that word enlightenment I always uh, tend to to put it in inverted commas um, uh, I suppose post enlightenment uh, you have a Christianity that that is somewhat um, disenfranchised from sort of the areas of science and knowledge and 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 is is seen as kind of something that that is pushed to the periphery when in fact the entire scientific tradition arose. Uh, you know, and, and was nourished uh, very strongly by um, the Christian Church, particularly in, in in the Middle Ages. And so, one of the things that, that that disappears very quickly is the subtlety of expression that was present within the in the tradition whenever um, the sort of spiritual realm was was spoken of. And uh, because of that, you tend to have this very black and white division um, appearing. Uh, in later Christianity, particularly Christianity of the, the 1800s, 1900s, which sort of names everything that is not us as either uh, angels or demons uh, right. straight away. Uh, whereas if you go back to um, early Christian thought and even into right up to the sort of high um, Middle Ages, 1500s, 1600s, there was a very, very, very great understanding of a subtlety, a kind of a ladder of being um, of which humanity was was a part and a very important part. But it was understood that there was almost an infinitude of, of steps on the ladder of consciousness, uh, ranging from what we would call um, insensible matter uh, right the way up to to, um, to divine consciousness itself. 
and that this was part of the richness of creation and that there were many, many steps along the way um, that included uh, everything from, yes, the, 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 the angelic, of, of which the demonic is a fallen part, and, and then uh, within that, the various orders of angels right the way down to the various forms of, of discarnate spirits and even what would later, I suppose, be seen as sort of elemental ideas or elemental consciousness. And within within the the, um, the latter tradition, there was also the understanding of the kind of anima mundi as well, the sort of um, uh, world soul, the idea that in some way, shape or form, all of this consciousness was able to communicate in various ways um, and that for those who trained themselves in more contemplative ways, it was possible to come into contact uh, in, in a very real way with this. Because, of course, the Christian tradition basically teaches that because of, of the fall, because of the brokenness of the fall in humanity, one of the things that has happened is our ability to communicate with creation has is fundamentally broken. Um, and so we are we are people who are sort of outside the, the, the discourse that's taking place between all of these various realms. Uh, and, and so um, when we do come into contact with it, it tends to be at moments of, of quite high emotion or uh, tragedy or, or um, elation or, or, or wonder and awe with regard to nature. And, and in some way, shape or form in these high or peak experiences, peak moments, that's when we begin to be aware of the oneness of creation in its relationship with the divine. But most of the time, we're outside the conversation. We're in we're in another room, sort of listening through the wall almost. And so because of that, uh, our understanding of what's going on and of the various levels and, and uh, multiplicity of forms that this dialogue is taking place in is quite mixed up, to say the least. Yeah, that is, I mean, it's, I guess it's most simply put by uh, my co-author of the upcoming book, Josh, when he, when he, mm. he says a, a vast ecosystem of spirits. Which... Yes, ab- absolutely. And, and so um, uh, there, there's the understanding, I, I suppose, from the beginning that, that each uh, level of, of creation, if you like, from the very, very simple right through up to the very, very complicated, has its, its own message, its, its, own, its own word, its own ability to express in its own way, of course. And so, uh, I mean, St. Augustine, for example, one of the, the great fathers of the early church um, speaks of God having as having written two books, the book of scripture and the book of creation, and that both of these are valid expressions of, of knowledge and wisdom and love, and that the divine can be discerned through both. And in fact, that it's the duty of humankind to work to understand both as fully as possible, um, particularly by, by listening and by cultivating the ability to listen to the different levels of creation and, and the different voices that speak through it. Do these ideas um, sort of continue? like within your tradition? Yes, uh, very, very solidly, I suppose. Um, I mean, the, the Capuchins for, for many years have been part and parcel of the the tradition, I suppose, that, that more radically would be seen within things like deliverance and exorcism and etc. But in a, in a far more um, quiet way, um, we would tend to be invited into situations where people are having encounters with various aspects of the other, as you put it, um, that maybe at times disconcert them or, or upset them. Um, and so when, when we would be called into those situations, it, we go in with the subtlety of knowledge to know that it's not just necessarily a demonic expression um, that, that you're automatically going into. And quite often it's a mix of things. So you'll find in in one situation, um, you could have everything from, you know, psychological disturbance right the way up to um manifestation of a discarnate entity and and sometimes 
uh, a long and 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 um, uh, subtle process of discernment is necessary to kind of unpick all of the threads of these things when it's when it's going on. So the kind of a uh, ghost hunter show where somebody walks in and immediately says, "Oh, it's a demon," or immediately says, "You know, uh, this house is haunted," or whatever, is um, the complete opposite to the approach we would take. So. Uh, the, the friar who, who taught me, I suppose, going, going back to the way I was kind of trained into it, um, for whatever reason, uh, he, he saw some potential in me with, with regard to this and uh, began to sort of uh, um, uh, bring me out and, and, and uh, apprentice me to this to some extent. But I mean, his first comment to us was, you know, 90% of cases, it, turn, it turns out to be um, physical circumstances that the people are unaware of. Um, and, and most of that tends to be things like, you know, mice in the walls or bad heating pipes or, or whatever. So you start with that. You always start with that. And then you begin slowly and surely to to gather information. And as you gather the information, then things become very clear. For example, his case, the case, the case that sort of started him off, just to give you an example of this, was uh, he was called out to um, two little old ladies who were who were living in a in a house together, two sisters, and the reason he was called out was because they said things were going missing all of the time in the house, and he was convinced this was just probably you know the beginnings of old age, you know, um, the beginnings of of uh, that wonderful time in life when we begin to put things down and forget where we've put them. Right. Um, so uh, he, he went out and visited with them. And of course, they were delighted to have uh, the friar come to visit and they had made tea, etc. And as he was sitting at the kitchen table, they were telling him how small items were going missing around the house and that they would turn up in unusual places. And he was, you know, calmly putting this down to the, the, the onset of old age. And then suddenly the, the teapot on the table got up and poured two cups of tea by itself and sat down again. And one of the ladies turned around and said to him, see, this is what we're talking about. This keeps happening. Wow. Uh, at which point he decided he needed to go back and call in his own, his own master or teacher. But the, the, the slow um, work on that was the discernment as to whether or not it was a case of, I suppose, what we would call psychokinetic tension between the two ladies. Was there the presence of a discarnate entity? Once it's a discarnate entity, then is it, um, you know, human in origin? Is it natural in origin? Is it um, supernatural, as in angelic or demonic? And all of those things had to be had to be looked at slowly but surely. And in the end, his feeling was that it was a mixture of of the tension between the two ladies plus some form of discarnate entity that was there. Um, and so, uh, what Hollywood would kind of go with in terms of, you know. Uh, shouting and, and, and roaring clergy going in and and, and um, sort of uh, banishing, uh, you know, banishing demons immediately uh, was actually more a kind of a series of appointments with them that was to do with counselling, resolving tension, you know, praying and blessing the house, uh, quietening the anxieties that were there. And slowly over time, the thing just faded away. So almost like whatever this entity was, was sort of drawn to the tension in a sense. Yeah, you would often find that. I mean, you know, it's 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 a cliche at this stage to say that that, that where poltergeist cases are concerned, you'll very often find a, a, a focus, you know, a, a, an individual very often going through tension difficulty themselves, um, particularly uh, young women on the on the cusp of, of um, puberty, um, particularly if there's been delayed first menstruation for some reason, this seems to be an issue. Can happen with men as well. Uh, I've dealt with a number of cases of, I suppose, classic poltergeist um, stuff. Um, but again, 
we within our tradition we would say that that this is not to be met with in terms of um, direct exorcism per se but actually it's more to do with kind of counseling the individual resolving the psychological tensions yes blessings and prayers can be can be um, offered as well which are very often extremely effective but usually usually the most important thing is actually finding the teenager that needs to be listened to and allowing them to to talk and and once that happens very often the pressure goes away and when the pressure goes away the phenomena ceases so uh, again over time it's it's just the discovery of what you're actually dealing with as opposed to the poltergeist like symptoms that can presage the beginning of of a more um, demonic event but but that tends to build up over a series of years so you have yourself encountered mm, yeah like this, yeah yeah, I suppose. I, I mean, you know, not to get into into ghost stories as such, but but um, I, I suppose just to give you an idea, I, I was called in at one on one occasion to a house where um, at this stage that there was there was three people in the house, mother, father and daughter. Uh, the father had actually left the house. He couldn't take the manifestations anymore. Um, the mother and daughter were still there. Daughter was about 14, 15. She was actually really happy about the manifestations. She was getting knockings and bangings and she was communicating with whatever this was. Uh, through the classic, you know, one knock for yes, two knocks for no sort of idea, um, which had become a great sort of skill to show off to her friends. She would bring her friends into the into the house and terrify them by talking to this thing, whatever it was, kind of knocking back and forth. Wow. The father had had an experience where he was walking up the stairs of the house and had seen a young boy standing on the stairs looking at him. Um, and that was enough for the dad. The dad uh, had left the house at that point and was living with his, had gone back to live with his mother. Uh, wanted his wife and daughter to come with him, but they, they wouldn't. And it was the mother who asked me to come in to uh, to see could anything be done about this. So I went and visited the house. The house was fine. There was no kind of problems or difficulties on, on first noticing. The daughter was there, so I asked her to demonstrate to me what was going on, and she did. She spoke to the, um, to the spirit, and uh, again, there was bangings back from the attic, yes and no, and various pieces of, of um, information that you would ask for. Um, I asked, could I speak to it? And um, she asked, and we got a very definite no, didn't want to speak to me. So I didn't take umbrage at that. That was okay. And uh, in conducting a kind of a long form interview with, with the mother, she then spoke of the fact that she had had a number of manifestations over the years of waking up and feeling that there was a young man somewhere in the bedroom. Um, she would wake up at night. She wasn't scared by it, wasn't upset by it, just a kind of an awareness that there was a young man there, which eventually began to resolve actually into visible, uh, visible imagery. So I asked her to describe the young man and uh, she did. It was a very average description of a, of a kind of somebody in their late teens. But what was interesting was she kept saying when I asked her how old he was, she kept saying 19. Uh, so I was, was sort of taken by this. I mean, normally people would give an age range, you know, they'd say right. between 12 and 15 or whatever, but 19 was very specific. Um, so I waited till the daughter had left the room and I asked the mother then at that stage, had there ever been other children? And uh, she said, no, there had never been other children. So I said, okay. So for some reason that was kind of rankling at me and we, we prayed for a while together, just general prayers of asking for peace. And I asked her again, you know, I said, have there ever been any other children? And she said, no. And then she thought for a while and she said, well, there was a miscarriage. So I asked, when was the miscarriage? And the miscarriage had taken place ni uh, 19 years before. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. So 
she had not connected the two things and yet unconsciously was very aware that, that this was at least she had she had connected it unconsciously uh, through the the figure 19 so i asked her what had happened and she told me the story of the miscarriage and as she was telling me the story we had a flurry of activity upstairs was banging and, and walloping off the off the walls upstairs and that was the first time they'd had noise when the daughter wasn't present so i asked the the, the lady in question would she be happy if we prayed for the the the, the soul of the, the child who had who had been miscarried. Um, I explained to her that in, in our tradition, as far as we would be concerned, any you know baby of any age um, that, that 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 passes um, is immediately uh, in in the presence of God, is immediately in the presence of love. It wasn't the case of the soul being trapped or lost or anything like that at all. But what she felt was that it was um, that that uh, the son, her son, if if you put it like that. Uh, was actually coming back to sort of protect the family or to be with the family. And it turned out that there was an undercurrent, a, a very difficult time had been going on between the mother and father uh, before this manifestation took place. And there's always this, there's always layer upon layer. And, and you find that you have, to, you have to quite often visit a number of times before the full story really appears. Um, because very often it's like people who have an infestation, you know, they want the roaches gone, they want the rats gone, you know, straight away. So you call in the exterminator and that's what you want. But you, sometimes the exterminator has to do a little bit of digging to discover, well, where the food source is or where the, you know, where are they actually getting in or what's the reason for them? So as we chatted about it, she became very emotional, as you can imagine. It was a very tough experience to, to recount and to remember. And we went through a naming ceremony of the baby because the child had never been named um, so she named the child and um, at that point the daughter had returned so what I was figuring at that stage was that our, our friend had been very much passive and in the background until the daughter had begun to manifest puberty and with the explosion of energy that goes with that in some way shape or form she was lending energy to him to be able to manifest in a much stronger way mm -hmm. so it meant that she would also have to let go of him um, and when the when the story was explained and when she talked about it, she was quite happy to do that. So we went through a little ritual of prayer and blessing and also recognizing that, you know, he was part of the family and that he always would be and they would remember him and honor him and name him from now on. And uh, we also asked him to intercede for peace between the mother and father as well. From that day on, they never had any other manifestation and uh, uh, the family are, are all back together and solid in the house and everything is fine. And the only thing that happened out of it that uh, the lady in question was determined uh, was that the husband would never be told that she had resorted to bringing a monk into the house because he wouldn't have been happy about that. So there you go. <laughs> uh, that, was the, that, was the, that was the end of the story on that occasion. But again, it's, it's a good illustration of how what might seem to be just a very basic, you know, poltergeist PK kind of case actually has a very, very subtle story of emotion and generations behind it, which really needed to be explored, pulled out, counseled, you know, right. reconciled with before before, um, uh, before it could be laid to rest in any way, shape or form. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. 
book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And one thing that keeps coming up in what you're mm. telling me, which is of no surprise to me since I've been introduced to the idea, uh, probably sure. from our uh, sister podcast, Where Did the Road Go? It's the idea of uh, liminal times. So these are these yeah. times that are, you know, these are people in some form of change or some sort of crisis mm. that's happening, that these things are also happening around them. Well, I, I suppose the, the, the human being by nature is liminal. You know, uh, we, we, we are this, this extraordinary mix of, of consciousness and physicality. And uh, uh, the, the, the fantasy writer Terry Pratchett, I'm not sure if you've come across him as an English fantasy writer, but mm -hmm. at one, on one occasion he defines the human being as where the falling angel meets the rising ape. Um, and it's, 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 a good, it's a good definition. You know, it's that moment of... of um, uh, of uh, the, the the human being sort of being in the very corporal existence that we have, and yet at the same time with this aspect of consciousness, awareness, uh, and, and an ability to sort of to reach further. So I think our entire existence is liminal in that sense. We're also very aware that we're on a chronological journey. We have entered this world, and the only definite thing about our life is that there will come a moment when we exit this world, you know. After that, wherever we go is up to the individual to explore and to find for themselves and, and to, to, to seek the truth of. But I think because of that one of the things we discover then is that it's when we when we encounter the really liminal moments uh, across our life, whether that's seasonal, emotional, familial, whatever it might be, these seem to be moments where we become much more aware of the spiritual world around us. And I would say also, it tends to be a time where the other becomes more aware of us. And I do think there is an equation somewhere along the way where one feeds off the other. And I think that's that's something that, um, you know, can be a, a very problematic experience for many people. Yeah. Uh, we had one experience recently. Um, uh, one friar was called into uh, a young couple had moved into an old house. They were experiencing huge difficulties with regard to since they moved into the house uh, with health problems, exhaustion, um, just not getting on, snapping at each other a lot. You know, they put it down to stress, they put it down to work, they did all of those kind of things. But there was just something very negative appearing kind of between them. And it had really uh, come about only from the time they'd moved into this this building. Um, so eventually they had they had come seeking prayer and uh, I had suggested that they would look a little bit maybe into the history of the building. And it turned out that one of the um, people who had lived there before had had, you know, there had been very negative experiences with regard to this person who had since died and gone. But to some extent, there was an echo left. There was some kind of impression left. And we discovered afterwards that they had actually kept the bed that this person had had had. And it was only when they were sleeping in the bed 
um, that they would then wake the following day and experience this huge depression of energy, spinal pain, kidney pain, which is actually one of the big factors we look out for um, to see if there's a genuine Really? Uh, draw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now, I want to be very careful when I'm saying this to people because immediately people can say, oh, that's what it is. And, you know, sometimes a kidney infection is just a kidney infection, you know, uh, in fact, most of the time. And very often the sort of spiritual can be combined with the physical, but it is something we would look out for, uh, a kind of a draw on the kidneys or, or, or lower lower back pain um, and uh, consistent that goes with a kind of a low-grade depression as well. So we suggested to them that they would get rid of the bed and just to see, you know, purely in an empirical way, let's do an experiment, get rid of the bed and see how things are. So the lady in question was all for getting rid of the bed and was delighted to do it and wanted to clear it. But for some reason, the guy had become absolutely obsessed with this wooden bed, wooden bed frame. It was an antique bed, um, wanted to hold on to it, saw the value of it, um, wanted to change every part of it. And even went so far as to say that he had changed it. Um, but the symptoms were continuing and we discovered that he hadn't gotten rid of it. Hmm. So at that point, you're, you're dealing with with kind of a, I'd say almost a sort of a parasitic relationship, you know. And very often what can be happening is that something lower in, in the sort of lower echelons of, of the other, um, to use your, your name for it, is effectively leaching energy in order to manifest. And so you get this, this tiredness, exhaustion, worn outness um, that can happen. And when people are living very busy lives anyway, as they are today, with very little reflective capacity and very often very little spiritual practice, their sensitivity to what's going on can be quite dull and it takes a long time to notice it. Um, so that case is still ongoing. Um, he's still holding on to the bed and she's still saying she wants to move it. Um, and our advice to them still is, is, you know, sometimes objects need to be let go of or cleared. And uh, we have a friar who, who will be going in there to, to bless the place and, and clear it for them, hopefully, pretty soon. These stories are, are amazing. The subtlety with which you're approaching them is uh, completely fascinating to me. It's Well, I, I suppose a lot of it comes from the fact that we've been working with this for so long. I mean, quite literally thousands of years that you, you'd build up a very strong knowledge base and a, and a very practical um, base around what works and what doesn't. And also, you know, a huge reverence and respect for doctors and psychologists and psychiatrists and psychotherapists and all of those people who can people in these, in, in these ways as well. And I mean, normally before we, we would really move on something in a, in a, in a, a very um, deliberate or dramatic way, we would make sure that all of the medical and psychological possibilities have been exhausted first, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you ever encountered what you felt was a truly demonic entity? Um, on, only once, I, I would say. Um, I, I Some years ago um, was asked to a house where, uh, again, an old house, a uh, young couple had, had moved into it with two children. Um, everything was going fine. And then the child began to have really severe nightmares. I mean, extreme night terrors, would not go to sleep, would not go to bed. This was the, the youngest child. He was about five at the time. Um, when the mother would talk to him about, about it, he kept speaking about um, the black thing, uh, the dark thing, the black thing that was in the room. So the mother um, would let the child obviously sleep in, in, in their room instead. He was fine in his room during the day. There was no problem in his room during the day. He'd be all around the house during the day. But he, he would, as nighttime was getting nearer, he would get more and more scared, more and more aware of it, just would not go to bed. 
So um, again, they they consulted their doctor. They consulted, you know, the doc. The doctor suggested it was to do with you know moving house and and um, you know the child would settle down in time. Um, the grandmother, you know, it's always good to listen to grandmothers. They tend to know an awful lot. But the grandmother was a little unsure of of, of what was going on, and decided on one occasion when she was babysitting that she would actually stay in the room. Um, so she stayed in the room. Uh, the child was quite happy to sleep because Granny was now staying in the room. There was no problem with that. And um, halfway through the night, she woke up and she saw something that looked like like a black uh, ink cloud kind of pouring down the corner of, of the room over where the baby's uh, cot, uh, crib, as you'd say, uh, was. Mm-hmm. So uh, she got quite frightened, took the child out of the room. And the child basically was saying, look, that's... <laughs> you know in in the form of a five-year-old was basically saying that's what i was telling you about right so uh again that's when we got the call through you know a friend of a friend of a friend suggested that 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 we would get a call so i went out with another one of the brothers it was one of the first cases i actually dealt with went into the house and uh the house felt fine absolutely perfect no problem at all bright airy lovely beautiful house we went upstairs, we went downstairs, we went through bedrooms, went through, everything was fine. We did a blessing of the house, everything was fine. Uh, and we decided we would sit and um, just have a cup of tea with the with the family. And they were telling us the story and they were much relieved that we'd come. And they, they would hope that the blessing would, would do what, what was necessary. And we'd always start with very minor, you know, blessings and things like that, very simple things. But as we were sitting there in the room, I noticed that the little boy, he had been watching the television and uh, he had gone rigid and was staring over at the corner of the room. So I went over to him and asked him, you know, were you OK? And he said, it's here. The black thing is here. So this was the first time it had ever manifested during the day. And he was, I mean, rigid with fear. I, I, you know, it's, it's awful to see a child like that. So uh, I asked him to point where it was. And um, he pointed it out and myself and the other friar who were there, we went over into the corner and the corner was frighteningly cold, just absolutely freezing and a very, very nasty air of of sort of just um, kind of nausea inducing. Um, Now, again, I I saw nothing uh, and either did the other the other gentleman, but children see a lot more than we do. And we'd usually be guided very strongly by by children if they're if they're in a house where these things are going on, because they do tend to to see things much more clearly than we do. So we got there. We we, we felt it. We were both, you know, validating each other um, that this was def- very definitely there. And then it seemed to withdraw and it withdrew upwards up into the wall. And what we discovered was directly above the room where we were sitting, having the tea was the child's room. And we went up to the bedroom and felt it recede up into the attic. So at that point, we knew something more strong uh, had to had to take place. And um, we asked, I went back back to the friary. Again, I was only in training in this area at that time, but I spoke to one of our older men and he gave us a particular ritual to do. But he, he gave a lovely um, psychological uh, uh, teaching as well in, in that sense. He said, it's very important that the child feels it was part of casting this out, of clearing this. Because the child will always be worried that it's going to come back if it doesn't feel that it was part of it. That is so fantastic. Re- yeah, is- so really interesting, really interesting. So we went back to the house and uh, with the ritual and um, we went to the child's room and he was with a family. Obviously, we're all there, you know, all of them together. It wasn't just us and the, and the mm-hmm. five-year-old, but all, all of the family were there. 
and we prayed together and we performed the, 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 the ritual of clearing. And you could palpably feel a weight coming off the building at that stage. It was extraordinary. It was, it was like you could breathe a little clearer. But as we were doing it, um, the thing began to manifest and I saw the child become uh, slightly agitated and, and, and rigid again. So we spoke to him and we said, look, while one of us was doing the ritual uh, in, in a kind of a whispered way in, in the corner, a quiet way in the corner, we asked the child to, um, uh, to, to count to five um, because five was important. He was five. He knew how to count to five. So to count to five and to blow into the corner and to blow this away. Uh, so uh, while he was do doing this and blowing furiously as as children do, um, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, a good a good happy birthday blow uh, into the into the corner, uh, we finished the ritual and the thing was was bound. It was gone at that stage. Um, so he was happy and he slept in the room from then on. That was no problem. But the one thing we were also advised was to make sure that the um, that there was no space in the house that had been left behind from from what had gone on before. Um, and what we discovered afterwards was there was a, 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 an attic space above that room that had not been gone into by the family since they had come into the house. They were slowly renovating the house. And when they came, got into the house, into that area, they discovered a whole load of um, children's clothes and books and, and a lot, lots of kind of stuff that seemed to have been left behind by the, the previous people. When they investigated it further with neighbours, they discovered that the neighbours had felt that there was a, a daughter with the previous incumbents of the house who had been kept a virtual prisoner in the attic by her, by, by the parents. For whatever reason, I don't know. We couldn't, we could never find out what was going on. Uh, but the neighbours felt that there was something abusive going on. So whether that was a connection to what was going on, whether it was something else, I don't know. I can't, I can't say for, for certain, but it was interesting that there was a story and there was a space directly above the room where this thing was appearing or manifesting. Right. But they, they never had a problem with it again. And what was really important was that the the little boy felt that that he had been part of it and that he had, you know, power over it as well. That seems uh, incredibly wise to me. That it, it, when you said that, it just something clicked and says, "Yeah, that's important." That seems very, very wise to to make him part of it. I, I think so because you know whatever whatever else happens, fear is very often a way that these 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 things can begin to manifest, particularly um, in, with with uh, with the more vulnerable, you know, children, young people, teenagers, etc. They can all be very difficult times, liminal times, growth times. And if you're not working on, on grounding them solidly, that they feel that they are um, solid in, you know, in, in, a, in a safe place, um, in a protected place, in a loving place, um, it makes sure that the, the, the doors to these, these um, possibilities are, are solidly closed, you know? Mm -hmm. now, when you were doing these rituals, and this is just pure curiosity on my part, sure. are they in Latin? Uh, sometimes, yes. Sometimes, yeah. Uh, sometimes in in, in English. Um, uh, I mean, there, there's nothing magical about the language. About the language, you know, in that sense. Uh, That's where sometimes I was going with it. Yeah, what, yeah. what we can, what we can. Um, the, the reason sometimes they're in Latin is simply because uh, they have been preserved in Latin down through the ages, uh, so as to retain their purity. And, I, and by that I mean that there's no mistakes put into them or things like that. You know, exactly. a dead language is a very pure thing. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't change. Uh, and, and so, um, uh, and, and also it can be to try and make sure that there isn't 
I suppose, an increasing kind of emotionalism by the people who are around because they don't know what's being said. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so it's also a way of testing what's going on. So if you're testing something in Latin and you get a reaction from somebody who doesn't know Latin, um, it can be a real factor in determining whether or not something is actually present. That makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Makes a lot of sense. So sort since, of a double blind almost, you know? Right, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, since you're in Ireland, and mm. the, the Faye question will inevitably come up. Of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess there's there's this idea in general that Christianity moves in and stomps out all other, all other belief and all other folklore. Well, I would say that certainly didn't happen in Ireland, right. <laughs> whatever about anywhere else. Um, I think one of the things that 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 the the um, uh, the Christianity of I- of Ireland and this sort of um, what's vaguely, very vaguely called sort of Celtic Christianity was very good at was um, sublimation or absorption mm-hmm. um, of of what went on. So, uh, and this was the the actual missionary practice of the church that 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 you know all that was that was good or had good elements in it was to be absorbed because anything good in the Christian understanding, has its origin in the good, in the divine, in God. So, you know, sacred places um, became places of, of, of worship and, you know, churches were built there instead. You know, the holy trees, the holy wells, all of those things uh, were, were sort of integrated within the, within the practice. And, and also a great reverence and respect for the ancestors and for, and for the spirits would have been the spirits of the land would have been would have been very present as well so um for example just recently uh, I've, I've recently moved back to dublin we, we move every couple of years to different communities but i was for three years in in donegal which is in the northwest uh, of of, uh, of the country very wild kind of a place uh, many locations in the area around us were used for for game of thrones so if people want to picture it in their head that's what they can that's what they can picture um very wild kind of countryside but a beautiful place and a place that that i would say nature and humanity and faith and spirituality and mythology are all wrapped up in in the ordinary and the everyday up there so on our land for example the land of the the, the friary there uh, we, we've uh, the beautiful gift of, of being guardian of um, uh, about 160 acres of, of pristine national forest and, and coastland, uh, which we use as a retreat center, which is open to the public. Anybody can go and stay there. But on the land, there are a number of fairy sites. We have a, a, a very ancient uh, fairy hill or fairy castle that's that's on the, the on the site there. And when I went up there first, um, coming as I did from Dublin, I said to one of the locals, you know, I was introduced to the place and they showed me the, the fairy the fairy hill. It's beautiful, um, it's extraordinary hill that just rises up from this flat piece of land with these three or four beautiful big quartz rocks that jut out from it. And um, as I asked them, you know, when they told me this is the fairy hill, I said, uh, do they still, you know, do people still around here, would they still, you know, deal with the fairies or, or, or be aware of the fairy or believe in the fairies? And the man who was showing me around the land looked at me and said, oh, no, 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 nobody believes in the fairies. Oh, I said, right, that's OK. He said, we don't have to believe in them. They're there. Huh. So I said, OK, <laughs> that was that was me told. Um, and uh, most of the people in the area would have wood burning stoves within the, the house, you know, um, the house, the heating would, would most of them would be kind of wood burning. And so when a tree falls anywhere, um, there is a scurry uh, of people to get the, the wood for their, 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 their stoves. Mm-hmm. Um, and whenever a tree would fall on our land within, within a day, we'd have people knocking on the door to say, you know, would it be possible? And we'd always say, yes, we always shared the, the wood. But there was a storm 
on one particular night and there were three beautiful beech trees that grew right out of the top of this this fairy fairy fort and one of the beech trees was struck by lightning and fell and that fell three years ago and no one has touched a piece of wood from that from that from that it's it's still lying there just decaying away into the field wow um and the people are all around who would come for any other piece of wood but they won't touch that because that came from the fairy fort that belongs to them so it's 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 alive. It's under the surface. And I would say a lot of the kind of um, <laughs> scholars and, and, and sort of fairy tourists and, and, and I don't mean this in any um, insulting way, but the sort of more new age understanding of it. When people come looking for these things, they'll very often be sent by the locals to the wrong place um, ah. because the locals would say we're not having them upset them because if right. they upset them, it'll come back on us. Right. So you've kind of got to be there for a while before they begin to understand the relationship of the land. We had one gentleman who was an extraordinary man. He looked after a lot of the forestry and grounds for us, and he would have really worked with the old ways uh, in, in the forest. And, you know, a strong man in his Catholic faith, but had no problem combining that with all of the the other uh, um, <laughs> uh, the other understanding of, of the land as something alive and living and active. Uh, and on one occasion, we had um, uh, a guy coming to take down some some trees for us because they were beginning to lean into electric wires and we needed to, to trim the trees. So the gentleman came from the, the big industrial company with all of his equipment and the equipment wasn't working properly and he was getting more and more angry and he was getting angry with his staff and, you know, the trees weren't coming down. And eventually our uh, groundsman, this gentleman I was telling you about, came to, came to him and put his hand on his shoulder and said, no more. The land will take blood from you today if you keep going the way you are. So the gentleman didn't know what to do. And um, our groundsman said to him, you can come back tomorrow, but it's not happening today. The trees don't want to come down today. So the man in great frustration went back to his own place and uh, took a chainsaw to a hedge in his in his own garden. <laughs> Um, and um, uh, the chainsaw hopped back and, oh. and took a gash out of his out of his shoulder. He was fine, thankfully, but you know had, the, the gash was was there. And the following day, he came back bandaged to our place to continue the job. And our groundsman came towards him and had a look at the wound and said, "That's fine now. The trees have had their blood; they'll come down." And the trees came down, no problem at all that day. Oh, uh, wow. So. Uh, you know, it's all there. It's all there. We're, I think one of the great things we, we forget, which maybe places like Ireland still hold on to to a large extent, is the union between the land and the people um, and the understanding that, you know, we're just guardians of it for a little while and then the next generations go on. But there are much older and more ancient beings that have a role of guardianship as well. And it, it's, it's, uh, it's important to pay them the respect and sort of keep out of their way. Yeah, I, I'm incredibly interested when you said this groundskeeper sort of combined the old ways with a very strong Catholic faith mm. and did mm. not have an issue with that. No, not at all. Not and, at all. And they're just, they're just, no, they're, they're just part of the part of the pantheon, you know, in that sense. Um, uh, you know, we, we, we venerate the saints. We, 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 we know the angels are with us, you know, uh, we, we've spoken about the demonic, um, but we're also aware of the, the, the spirits of the land. And that goes back even to, you know, high Catholic theology the, the, of, of the scholastics, people like Thomas Aquinas, Bonaventure, um, um, you know, some of the, the great, great 
philosophers and 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 thinkers would have said that you know every species, every individual um, plant or animal has its its guardian, its guardian spirit, its guardian angel, and that these you know that there is a ladder or a hierarchy um, ranging from you know the great high angels that we we, we think of um, from from scripture right the way down to the the, the spirits of the land. And that all of these are in a continuum of um, sustaining, preserving, renewing uh, creation, you know, at, at the, the behest of the divine. And so uh, where we run into trouble is either we don't respect them or we begin to connect with the more capricious or, or, or uh, kind of trickster-like um, entities, uh, which are very often there, I think, simply to teach us to be humble um, and to recognize that there is a lot that we, we don't know about. So that's again another element that that that, that is there. Um, but yeah, in in certainly there are there are places still um, in in Ireland like Donegal, like some of the places in in, in the west and, and down in the very southwest where this would be very alive and not just kind of traditions or stories that are spoken of, but it would be you know part and parcel of of the the present day to day reality. So this is making me feel as someone who grew up Catholic. Mm. Very, very good because of late, and I don't know if you've ever heard me say this on the show. If if someone would ask me, you know, say, "What are you?" You know, what, <laughs> as regards to religion, mm-hmm. for many years I didn't have an answer, and then I just started saying uh, the Blessed Virgin has been very important in my life. Mm. So I, I would just, I am a, but I feel this spirit in all things. So I would say, sure. Sure. I am a Marian animist, and well, that's, what, that's, that's it. It's a good way of, of, of putting it, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, and what you're saying is that I'm not, I'm not necessarily outside the bounds of the church. In in no, no, in, in, indeed, I, I think we've we've very wide bounds, really. Uh, um, I, I suppose the distinction, if you want to go to, to a philosophical or theological distinction, would be that that uh, Christianity, or, or, or in its Catholic and, and and also Orthodox, by the way, and the, in the, the Eastern Orthodox Church would would think the same. Um, so in, in its mystical understanding, it would see itself as not pantheist, but panentheist. Um, and that, that EN is very important in that it, it's what it's teaching is that the divine is present in everything that exists in every aspect of nature through divine attention, holding everything in being. And that everything is a communicative word of the divine. So reality itself is sacramental. But at the same time, the divine transcends and is beyond um it's, it's creation, whereas pantheism would say that nature itself is the divine. So panentheism says that then actually nature exists within, subsists within, and is a communicative word and a place of, of contact and connection with, but at the same time, um, in, in Orthodox Christianity and Catholicism, we would say there is, um, that the divine is also beyond creation again. Um, in its in its origination and in its in its uh, personhood. So it's sort of a both end idea. Indeed, absolutely, and and you will find that again and again in the contemplative tradition, where you know um, we tend to be very very literal in our divisions day to day. You know, it's it's science versus religion, it's black versus white, it's good versus bad, it's all of those kind of ideas. Whereas um, while all of those distinctions exist on a very practical basic level. There is still an understand. There's always a place where these things overlap. There's always a place where these things connect. There's always a place where these things are are in in flow or in flux with each other. So 
so extending this, uh, and, and we're taking a little sidestep into um, a more a sort of a straight Christian territory here, but uh, mm, I've, sure, got you, yeah. I've got you on the line, and, and this is my interest as well. Um, you mentioned Celtic Christianity before. Sure. And of my limited understanding, there are a number of saints, basically, in Celtic Christianity that, that aren't necessarily accepted by the Catholic Church. Is that correct? Uh, no, that's not okay. correct. Okay. Uh, um, okay. The, the way it works is, is I suppose, there were different forms of, of canonization. So up until uh, about the year 1000, uh, for someone to be esteemed a saint, it was enough that the local church, the local community around that person would have, by general acclaim, after they had died, venerated them as a saint. Um, so that was known as canonization by vox populi. Uh, by the voice of the people. In other words, the, 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 the affirmation of the community, a kind of a, we knew him, we knew her, you know, uh, and we're happy to, to seek intercession through them. Right. And so those individuals then over time would have been written into what we would call the canon, the canon of the saints, uh, the, 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 um, the record of, of, of official saints. Mm-hmm. And up to about the year 1000, the general way in which someone was declared a saint was was that way, uh, whether in the Eastern or Western Church. After round about the year, uh, I mean, for, for, for rough rounding up reasons, uh, after the year 1000, a process of investigation began to be put in place so as to sort of make sure that someone actually had... Um, I suppose, lived up to the, the, the high standard of, of, of life that one would expect of someone who is going to be venerated as a saint. Um, and things began to be more centralized. Uh, and uh, as a result of that, there was the kind of process of canonization. So nowadays, if someone was to be declared a saint, uh, while they might be venerated locally, for them to be venerated by as, as a saint by the sort of universal church, the church throughout the world, um, it would only be after a process of, of investigation. So the church would differentiate between those who were canonized vox populi, which would be many of the Celtic saints because they existed in that age, in that era, uh, and those later who would have been canonized by process of canonization, which is a very formal process of people arguing for and against the person. You're kind of hitting on what I was getting to with this already, mm. which is which is the the idea of folk saints. Yeah, Absolutely. And how they would be received, I guess, in general. I, th- I think very, very favorably. I, every, everywhere has them. I mean, we, we celebrate every year. And I mean, we speak of, of, of a liminal time. I suppose one of the the liminal month in the church's year, in a very special way, would be November, um, in that it's it's known as the dead month. It's the time of remembering the ancestors, those who have gone before us. So in those early days of November, you have obviously Halloween, All Hallows' Eve, um, which was the time generally when, in Ireland particularly, um, there were great ceremonies at home and in houses to prepare for the visit of the dead. The dead would visit that night. It was expected that they would visit and the house had to be cleaned and the people would be ready for them and all of that. And it was a, a time when the ancestors would come back to sort of check on the land and check on the people. And then you had um, the Feast of All Hallows itself. So All Hallows Eve precedes it, like Christmas Eve precedes Christmas Day. Um, and on, on All Hallows, the Feast of All Saints, it wasn't just the canonized saints who were venerated, but it was all the great and the good, all those folk saints, as you would say, uh, the holy ones, the good ones, the, the, the people who had um, uh, we had known in life and esteemed as, as good people who had done their best, um, whether they ha- had... Um, particular charismatic gifts that would have been seen, you know, in very special ways, or whether they just lived lives of 
you know, compassion and solidity of, of faith, hope, love. Um, they're the ones who are venerated on that day, the Feast of All Saints. Um, one of uh, an old priest I knew used to say it was the Feast of the Common or Garden Saint, you know, as opposed to uh, as opposed to the canonized as such. And then the rest of the month of November, the following day is All Souls, in which we would remember uh, those who are what we would say in, in via, they are still on the way. So they are those who have died, but are still going through spiritual purification. And that would be purgatorial souls. And, and, and actually, in the tradition that we would belong to, a, a, a ghost proper in the sense of um, a sentient apparition of a deceased person mm-hmm. would be seen as a purgatorial soul. Um, someone who is uh, appearing or being allowed to appear or manifest so as to uh, seek the spiritual assistance of the living, so as to be able to move on further um, through our prayer. Um, And they are also allowed to assist the living. um, So there is a a, um, a mutual service of the living and the dead, one, one, you know, towards each other so that each can accomplish at their end perfectly. And then the rest of the month is spent remembering the dead and also meditating on one's own death. So that's that's the month of November. So the folk saints would fit very strongly into that. That's just wonderful. The view you're giving me is of a, a much more open, and I, I don't know if, see, the voice you hear most is in America is that of American Protestantism because it's, it's big, mm. it's, it's boisterous, mm. and, you, you know, it is what it is. And it does not encompass these things very easily. Let's just say that it does not accept these things very well. I, I think one one of the things I, I suppose that 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 has been you know very present within um, uh, the the sort of more evangelical Protestant tradition since since its since its inception ha, has been a very you know a very strong and strident faith in Christ as Savior, and obviously a kind of a growing out of that not not across the board but but growing out of that a scriptural literalism which would not have been found in the early church. So, I mean, the, the, the Catholic and Orthodox traditions would see Scripture as, yes, the revealed and divine word of God, but a word that is revealed through many genres within that, that compendium of literature that we call the Bible, uh, which is everything from myth to, to song to um, proverb to wisdom literature to historical description and, and literal historical work. And again, there would have been the subtle understanding that all scripture had a number of meanings within it, uh, which would have included not just the literal interpretation, but mystical interpretation. So the early church would not have seen the Bible as a, a document that was meant to explain history or science, but a document that was meant to inspire, um, you know, primarily a growth in relationship with the divine. And then after that, um, you know the, the various other uh, elements within within the word would be present. So I think one of the things that maybe got got lost within the Protestant Reformation, and many good things came out of the Protestant Reformation, Absolutely. including the reform of the Catholic Church. Um, but but uh, uh, you know one one of the things that was maybe lost was this understanding of um, the unit of experience of humanity with creation, with nature, etc. Um, and with the kind of more subtle understanding of the levels of spiritual um, spiritual being uh, that, that 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 are present. What's interesting, I think, is that if you look at the history of spirituality, religion, etc., across uh, Europe and into the States, is that a lot of that begins to be 
looked for, sought for, and even replicated in the various occultic movements within uh, Western occultism. So things like Rosicrucianism, Freemasonry, etc., etc., to some extent at least, is, is the replication or the seeking of both the ritual life and the mystical life uh, that, that maybe had gone missing post-Reformation. That's a very interesting idea, absolutely. Mm. So to shift gears and, and get back into more, sure, more sure. usual Strange Familiars territory, I could, <laughs> I could talk about uh, this side of things uh, for hours as well. But uh, you have a note about the place of intention and imagination in communication with the other. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Extremely important. So one of the things is, is that, that, that uh, I suppose within, again, within Orthodox Christian tradition, there would be the understanding that the imagination is a faculty of the soul. So it is a spiritual faculty primarily. Um, and in that sense, it is one of the places in which we image or uh, mirror the divine, but at a human level. So the divine creates ex nihilo, out of nothing. Um, uh, in other words, all that is necessary for the divine to create is for the divine to want to create. Um, whereas a human being creates in a contingent manner. Um, in other words, we can only create through what we have seen and, and um, uh, perceived or understood, and we um, mix that up again. So in that sense, you know, the person who invents a dragon is is just inventing a big lizard. You know, the person who invents a unicorn is 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 taking a horse and putting a horn on it, etc. Right. Uh, one of the great uh, modern or somewhat modern philosophers around this would have been um, people like C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, etc., uh, who would really have sp spoken a lot about the philosophy of the of the imagination as a as a place of encounter with the divine and an encounter with the other. Um, so, for example, when Tolkien was asked, um, well, how can you as a devout Christian write about elves? His response was, well, that elves must exist at least in the mind of God already as a potential idea, because otherwise Tolkien would be having an idea that God hadn't had, in which case Tolkien's mind would have been greater than God. So, therefore, his response was, elves exist at least in the divine mind already. So uh, what, what an argument, though. I mean, that's, that's you know, <laughs> well, it's just it's just this perfect argument. These were men trained in, in, in perfect logic and, and, you know, and, 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 and rhetoric. Um, so in, in that sense, at the very least, all that we imagine uh, already exists. Now, in that sense, one of the difficulties with that is that when we encounter the other, um, to use your, your name for it, and it is, let's say, a spiritual intelligence or a discarnate intelligence or consciousness. And again, that's imputing consciousness um, and awareness on something that may experience consciousness and awareness in a way totally different to, to us. One of the, the things that the tradition teaches and has taught is that very often elements within the person's own mind will be used to construct a reality so that the uh, entity intelligence is able to communicate with the person. And that's where discernment comes in. The idea of the person recognizing that the vision, the, the experience may not necessarily be what it is manifesting as. And so we would have, for example, in, in our own work, very, very strong rules of discernment around never trusting what one sees with one's eyes. Uh, because you are never entirely certain that what is being presented to you is actually the truth. 
it may be presented to you in such a way um, as, uh, for, for example, in a compassionate way. So let, let's let's imagine a compassionate other, um, a compassionate uh, great intelligence that decides to manifest um, in a way that is um, suitable for a person to be able to interact with. So a great angelic being might decide to manifest as a as a human being or even as an animal, so as to uh, give the message, but without terrifying the recipient. Because if we were to see the being in its essence, we would be, you know, scared stiff, for example, right. or, or, or lose consciousness or whatever it might be. But the same applies to the other side. So if we were to speak of maybe a, a, an intelligence that isn't compassionate, uh, you know, there is the possibility of deceit by apparition uh, of something that, that appears to be um, good when it is not in fact good. I mean, you know, the, the classic scripture for that is that, you know, that the, the, the devil can appear as an angel of light, you know, in, in, in that sense. So again, there was always, always, always the spiritual lesson taught that you do not trust your senses with regard to this. You trust instead inner intuition, uh, inner awareness and working through spiritual authority. So, in, in, for example, in all of those cases that I spoke about where myself or other friars went to these places, we're, we're not go- I'm not going as, as, as Richard into those places because I could be squashed flat as Richard. My human intelligence, my human awareness is not necessarily able to, to encounter those things and, and, and understand them or, or be present to them or, and especially tell them what to do, you know. Instead, there is the understanding that you are going in with the spiritual authority of the tradition and in the name of the divine. Um, and it's only in using that authority or in using that particular empowerment or grace that that um, that there is any success in, in working with these things. And I think that's why the great spiritual masters have always taught, and, and not just in the Christian tradition, in fact, but in other traditions as well, uh, that you must be very, very careful in dealing with any of these things, because quite often the, your own imagination is the source book they are using to be able to create what they want you to see. This dovetails, I believe, mm-hmm. very nicely with something I often warn people. Like, I'll get contacted by a lot of people, you know, mm-hmm. this story, that story. And often it comes down to either divination or messages from the other. Mm-hmm. And I always say, that that's fine, but I wouldn't trust it. No, never. Never. And that's why we, we would speak of a hierarchy of truth which is very important in, in that there is, um, it, it's, it's a word that people don't like very often now, but we speak of, I'm, I'm talking about it in, in, the, in, the, um, in the theological sense. Um, there, there, there is what we call dogmatic truth, um, which would be sort of universal, um, divine in origin, etc. And that can be very, very, and, and usually it's, it's renowned for its simplicity um, more than anything else. You take something like, the commandments of Christ, for example, speaking from my own tradition, um, you know, they are they are very simple and they encourage great compassion and mercy and, and you know, love, essentially. The more complicated and the more detailed um, messages become, what, there are two things one needs to be very careful of. The first is if you are dealing with an intelligence far beyond your own, you may be simply just not understanding it properly, number one. Number two, um, it may be using elements of your imagination and psyche to uh, try and get a message across. And indeed, its purposes may be far beyond what the information is. So, for example, 
um, suppose a prophecy is given um, or information is given about the future and then the person stakes everything on that and this doesn't actually happen. Uh, well, how do you know that whether or not the intelligence was out, number one, just to fool you and to make a fool of you, or number two, from a spiritual point of view, thought you needed humility mm. and decided that this was the best way to encourage humility. And that's why messages, prophecies, private revelations, etc., all of those sort of things. Um, what we would say within the church's understanding is that you examine these things with reference to dogma. And if they don't stand up, if they're not in alignment with those basic truths, then they are let go of. Um, and if they are in alignment, then fine, you can you can look at them, you can be be aware of them, but you don't stake your life on them. Instead, you turn towards the basic end of things. And the one thing to watch out for is anything that tries to make a guru out of you. Um, because if you become uh, the guru, the prophet, the, 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 the cult leader, whatever it might be, the first thing that happens usually is that the person ends up descending into some kind of, of um, let's, let's, be, let's be nice about it and, and, and say, you know, kind of a self-centered existence. Um, mm -hmm. And that becomes a very, very dangerous thing. As an aside on, on the guru front, have you seen the documentary Kumari? Kumari, no, I haven't. If, if you get an opportunity, it's, it's a wonderful uh, comment on the whole guru idea. It's, okay. It's one of okay. my favorite documentaries. It's a, it's an American of Indian descent who kind of got away from, you know, the beliefs of his parents and so forth. Sure. But noticed sort of yoga culture coming in and borrowing from his home culture. So he grew a beard, grew his hair long. And oh, I have. I have seen this. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes, I have seen this. And he took on the sort of attributes of the guru and ended up becoming the guru. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and in some way, his own spiritual growth happened because of this. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It's, and, and, it's a very interesting, very, very interesting documentary. And, yeah. and yeah, his yeah. whole thrust to, to his students the whole time was, you don't need a guru. <laughs> yeah. And it, it was well, again, wonderful, there is, wonderful. There is something in the human being, I think, that, that, that seeks this, you know, um, in some way, shape or form, uh, in the essence of our being, in the heart of our being, we're seeking uh, awareness, we're seeking truth, we're seeking transcendence, we're seeking the beyond. Um, and, and if somebody turns up with a map, we're all too ready to accept the map. Instead, I suppose, in, in, in our tradition, we would say that, that it's not the guru you're looking for, it's the elder and the elder in that sense is someone who says, you know, I'm just walking the same path as you. I've maybe just started a little earlier. And so I'm a few steps further along. But I'm, I'm someone who's struggling every day and you're someone that's struggling every day. And let's struggle together. Um, and that's, that's eldership in, that's, in the fullest sense of it. It's an important distinction. Very much so. Very much so. Um, because uh, the guru, I think... The guru sensibility is bad for the disciple and it's bad for the guru, you know, uh, and, and uh, at least from what I've seen of it. Um, and I think obviously we're taking a very Western understanding of, of, of guru. I have yes. great friends within the um, Tibetan Buddhist tradition, for example, and, and their understanding of guru is a very different thing. You know, it's someone who has already achieved um, a certain level of transcendence. But I, again, I, I think it's it's something that also speaks back into what we were talking about with regard to the other, which is um, the most important thing for the the practitioner of any of this or anybody who's interested in this or investigating any of this is to be really, really self-reflective and self-aware. Because very often what you are putting out there as what you are looking for or hoping for, it will reward you with a certain amount of that 
so as to to hook you in um and then um after that then things become difficult if the person doesn't preserve a kind of an earthed groundedness along the way don't i know it <laughs> well uh, don't we all <laughs> at this stage you know it it it, it is it's, it's a fascinating thing i mean one of the things I've, I've heard you speak about quite often are the the sort of light phenomena and the, the, the orb phenomena and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and, and what's really interesting from our uh, tradition, I think an insight you might be interested in, is it one of, uh, it, it's generally understood within the scholastic, the, the high medieval tradition, that the, the form that a spiritual entity chooses is, is the form of a sphere because it is seen as as the perfect geometric shape and as the, as the, the, um, the simplest of, of um uh, of manifest of, of um, geometric manifestations, and so there are lots of descriptions within the the, the literature um, that that uh, before manifestation as a being that we would recognize, you know, be it um, angelic or, or any other any other kind of form, the the being will first make itself present or noticed as an orb of light. And I think that's that, that's something that maybe speaks directly to some of the phenomena that you've been recounting and, and, and speaking Abs- about. Absolutely, I mm. was uh, I was recently in the forest with my friend, and it was it was just about uh, nightfall. It, it mm. hadn't been completely dark yet, and uh, now we didn't nothing manifested. But this is the first sure. time I've been this close to an orb. I was taking pictures with my cell phone, and I mm. saw on the screen something came over my shoulder. I could watch it. It was an orb, mm. a, a white mm. orb came over my shoulder and then, you know, off into, into the woods. I couldn't get a pic. I, you know, I tried to snap a picture, but sure, it was just, sure. it, it was, yeah. it was too fast. But I, I was able to witness this, like that close to me, come over my shoulder. Mm. And, and, and this is in an area we've, where we've had a, a number of, of strange incidents, including seeing <laughs> other lights, other nights. Yeah, it's all extraordinary. And I think sometimes we get people who divide it into, you know, it's light phenomena, it's it's plasma, it's it's um, it's energy, it's spirits, it's fairies, it's it's and, and you know, the answer is probably all of the above, you mm-hmm. know, at, at one and the same time. And I think from, from that point of view, there is no reason why these things don't necessarily have, um, you know, conscious awareness themselves. Now, sometimes in dealing with this stuff. It, it gets very dark, hmm. um, and I've I've tried to explain to people that that darkness isn't always evil. It sometimes no. it's just dark, you know. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, yeah, I wonder if you is there, you know, uh, teachings or or theories along those lines. Mm. Above all else, preserve a sense of humor. That was the first thing we were taught more than anything else, uh, to make sure that you don't isolate yourself from the community that you engage in all of the ordinary human things uh, and and particularly um, that you have uh, occasions of of laughing at the, at the 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 kind of craziness of it all um there's an old proverb that goes right the way back to the early stages of monastic life which is nothing makes the devil run away faster than laughter mm. and it's 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 simply because that idea of we can end up taking ourselves and our theories and all of those kind of things extremely seriously and underneath it all is actually the simple sentence, I don't know. Um, you know, uh, you, under, we, we can have all of the systems of knowledge and all of all of the, the traditions and all of the um, tools of investigation and all of the methodologies of science and all of those things. And yet underneath it all, and probably to some extent, I would believe the main reason we are even allowed to encounter the manifestations of many of these things is, is for us 
to to assume a kind of a more humble presence within this this mm-hmm. universe within this creation and to be able to say you know i don't know there there are things out there that are bigger and beyond um, and that for some people can bring a darkness uh, and as i said not necessarily evil but a darkness in terms of just um almost a kind of a low-grade depression or, or an anxiety that, yeah. that, that just eats away at people. Um, and I think it's very important that, that people have good community, good family, and that if they notice that this is taking them away from those things, the balance has to be changed there and then straight away. And I think one of the things that a good community, um, and maybe maybe the podcast community is one of these places that can do that, um, is, is where if people notice this, in individuals, you know, to call them on it, to, to sort of say, you know, I'm getting worried about you. Uh, maybe you're going a little too far in by yourself. But I think uh, particularly where someone is taking themselves over seriously, um, there really has to come a moment of just relaxation, laughter, and being involved in things other than this is extremely important. You know, there are too many people have lost friends and families and even sanity by by getting uh, by following you know following the lights you know don't follow the lights across the moors you know right. that's uh, that's that's the most basic piece of folk advice there is you know notice them they're part of the place um, if you have communication with them there were basic rules that you were taught you know and one of those things was don't eat what they have to offer don't believe what they have to say and don't follow them across the moors because it, it's it's into a space that's not necessarily for us. Or that we're not capable of dealing with, at least at this level of, of our being. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, an earthiness is extremely important when dealing with the heavenly. I have uh, expressed it similarly. I, I tell people, take breaks. Take breaks Absolutely. and go do yeah. something fun. Go watch a superhero movie if that's yeah. what you like. Go read a book if that's fiction. Yeah. Do yeah. Some, get your head out of it for a while. Yeah, it's it's extremely important. Um, and and what, what very often people will find is that it's particularly when they take the breaks and when they move away that, in fact, manifestations can become stronger for a while because people it, there is a, a pullback, um, you know, that, that certainly some of the lower levels of this stuff, um, you know, can, can uh, begin to kind of want to pull you back in and will give you, you know... <sighs> There's a certain sense of the fairy gold about all this. They will always give you just enough to pull you in, but never enough to satisfy you. And I think that's something you just have to accept from the outset with this this particular end of things. And if you know that that's what it is, um, then there is there is um, a kind of a mutual respect, shall we say. And that's that's sort of the way to go with it. It's it's like the guys in Donegal saying, you know, we don't believe in them because we don't have to believe in them. They're simply there. And in that sense, it's it's uh, it's a kind of a mutual respect or mutual regard. But I think what you're saying about taking breaks is extremely important. Did you hear our show on Powell, our episode 100? I did indeed. Yes, I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. And that's our our local uh, folk healing tradition. Mm, mm. And, uh, and that 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 um, I, I'll forget the gentleman's name now. But the quote that you use at the start of your episodes about. Um, they say if a human being's eyes were slightly different, is is actually a, a teaching that we would be aware of as well, which says that 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 one of the effects of the fall was that our ability to perceive reality was dimmed, and so we don't see the light of our own being, um, and that part of the sort of peak experience that human beings speak of from time to time 
includes this awareness of the light of our own being. Uh, the American mystic and, and, and monk um, Thomas Merton, I'm sure you've heard of Thomas Merton. Mm-hmm. Uh, Merton, um, his famous, one of his most famous experiences was uh, this moment of revelation of seeing human beings as they actually are, as opposed to the way we perceive them. And he saw them as great beings of light, great beings of love. And his, his, um, his response to it all was, was to say that, that if, we, if we actually saw each other as we are, we'd get nothing done because we'd simply be bowing down to each other all of the time. So from, from, the, from the, the power quote at the start there, it's, it's, it's uh, absolutely commensurate with everything that I've been, that I've been saying. Oh, that's wonderful. So, and again, in, in the idea of sort of accepting that which is good is good, mm. Mm. the view on folk or faith healing. Yeah, well, I, I, again, I think it, there, there's, there's a subtle view of it in that it would be said that, that where, where it's, it's healing through, um, you know, the gifts of, of an individual or through... Uh, prayer or ritual, you know, there would be nothing wrong with that. There would be, I suppose, within the, in the tradition, we'd look askance at, at, at invoking spirits to heal mm-hmm. um, because you don't necessarily know what's doing the work and, and what will be asked of you later um, in terms of inviting the, those sort of things in. But I think every country, every group of people, particularly those, I mean, obviously, the native communities, the indigenous peoples of, of, of the Americas would have had their own traditions, but the traditions you're speaking of, which would have been, I suppose, European imports, they would have come in through uh, the Germans, the Dutch, all of, all of those various groups, would be very, very similar to what, what is still in Europe to this day. Um, you know, uh, in Ireland, for example, they would have been referred to as the sharp men or the sharp women. And they were the ones who would, were, were known to have the, the, the cure um, was the way it was put. And some of these would, would follow down in families or would be um, taught, um, would be passed on from fathers to sons. The old idea of the seventh son of a seventh son having had the gift to, to remove um, uh, various, it depends on the family. But I mean, you'd have some families would have had the gift to remove um uh, worms, parasites, they'd have had others that could stop bleeding, etc. Um, and then within the women's tradition particularly, there would have been a huge amount around uh, midwifery particularly and the kind of healing and cures that went with that. Um, my own my own great-grandmother on my mother's side was, was a sharp woman, as she was known, and she was brought in for uh, births and deaths um, uh, because she, they, they would be seen as people who, again, liminal, guarded the gates. They, they, were, they were the people who saw you into the world and the people who saw you out of the world um, and made sure that, that the, the coming in and the going out went went well. And they would have had all of those kind of um, ritual customs, like when the windows were to be opened, when the doors were to be closed, when you covered mirrors, when you uh, lit candles, when salt was spread in the, on the ground and all of these kind of rituals, which would all have been combined with, with Christian prayers. And again, um, would have been passed down through through the generations, you know. Yeah, that's amazing. General folklore um, was that absorbed, you know, into uh, the idea as well. The, 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 you know, as, as the church moves in, I, I I think so. I mean, I would say you know, folk folklore is is the wisdom of the people, and yes. and you know, the, the, in in that sense, the wisdom of the people is born of the experience of the people, and so. People are nothing if not practical. And I, I, I honestly, where folklore is concerned, I would say people only retain what works, you know. Um, 
if you have someone who tells you perform this particular ritual and your leg will get better and it does people will repeat that if it doesn't they get rid of it very quickly and very often they get rid of the person who told them uh, <laughs> as, as well so it, in that sense there is a huge huge deposit of wisdom and, and you know every so often as i'm sure you've seen as well there are all of these lovely articles that say oh that particular custom works because we examined it scientifically and it does a b c or d um, but this is where intentionality comes about. And I think the sharp men and women or the, the, the powwow people or the faith healers or whatever, they tend to be people who have learned or have been trained in, in the focusing of attention in, in, a, in a very strong and solid way. And sometimes that focusing of attention, I think, liberates healing in, in a way that, that uh, maybe modern medical science hasn't yet fully caught up with. I mean, there's so much work being done on the neurobiology of meditation, for example, at the moment, um, you know, the whole kind of mindfulness revolution and, and, and all of that within within uh, modern science. And um, and they're, they're having extraordinary um, findings around, you know, what simply breathing, being present um, you know, minding the moment does to the human brain. And this is what all of the traditions have taught from the from the beginning, you know, everything from Buddhism to Hinduism to Christianity to Judaism, you know, it all it all has these initial practices in common. And I think the same is true for the for the healing, the healing end of things as well. Um, and so we would have had in, in Ireland, particularly, there are all of those kind of folk customs that would have been caught up even within the life of the church. So for example, the 3rd of February was was St. Blaise's Day, who's the patron saint of throat illness, and everybody would go to the church and you have your, your throat blessed, uh, but you would also take home blessed oil or blessed cloth that would be used then for the healing of throat illness in the, in the, um, in the days to come. And on the feast of St. Bridget, um, Bridget is one of the great patrons of Ireland and was the patron saint of childbirth and of women in childbirth. So the night before St. Bridget, women would take linen cloths and spread them on the thorn trees, the fairy thorns, to collect the dew on St. Bridget's Day. And if the cloths were soaked with the dew, then that was considered a blessing from St. Bridget. And those cloths would be wound around the heads um, and the bodies of women as they were giving birth to relieve their pain. And then you would have had uh, the customs, like I was saying, for Halloween, for example, where the house had to be cleaned and bread and salt were left out for the, the ancestors to come and to, to sit and to bless um, and various other customs along the way. But they would all have been church endorsed um, and seen as a way of, of really connecting with the, um, the day to day life of the people. You would have had the ember days, for example, where processions took place around the land and the land was blessed and reconsecrated and cleared of any um, negative spirits, etc., um, so that the land could produce its crops properly and and um, uh, be enriched and renewed. Um, there were blessings against storms. The ringing of, of church bells, for example, on New Year's Eve is not for, for to mark a, a calendar date or a chronological date. It goes back to the idea of the ringing of a bell as an exorcism. Um, and the idea was you were casting out um, all of the darkness that had been present in the previous year so you could start afresh and start anew. So all of these things surround us and they still go on. I mean, simple things like people throwing salt over their shoulders and all of those kind of things. They, they go back to very ancient Christian Christian customs. And, and, and those customs may very well have been sanctified customs that, that, that came from earlier days and that were absorbed and seen as being perfectly good. I always uh, point out that if you want to read some amazing information on the efficacy of folk healing warts are probably the best example oh yeah oh my goodness yeah yeah everybody had their wart cure yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah. and they work 
to this day they work people still mm-hmm. buy warts off of people you know in, in Appalachia yeah. it's, it's yeah. regularly done and it works absolutely absolutely I mean there it's very interesting that even children will evolve wart rhymes and wart cures um, because it's one of the things that tends to affect children particularly um, so you'll have this whole thing of of you know rubbing warts on each other to transfer them uh, for example and uh, the idea that that um, there are particular people who are who are very good at removing them or telling them to go or talking to them to go um, and so uh, you know th- those things continue to be to be handed down you know one, one of the tests for example for for a faith healer in Ireland uh, was um, when a a boy was was considered to be someone who who may have had the gift um, they would wait until puberty uh, again a liminal time um, and uh, one of the tests was an earthworm would be placed on the on the boy's hand and if the earthworm rigored died uh, there and then uh, the person was considered to have the, the the power whatever the energy was that was coming from the person's hand was you know that had had killed the worm and that goes back to the idea that most sicknesses or illnesses were seen, at least in, in the early days, as being a worm. You know, there was something had gotten into you um, from somewhere else. So the idea of the the boy's hand being able to kill the worm. Now, I'm quite sure any poor earthworm placed in a boy's hand long enough is going to die anyway. But <laughs> but it was it was the idea that that in some way um, what they were observing would would also be present internally as well when the when the the boy would kind of put his hands on the on the, the sick person or the, the sick area. But there were all kinds of rules for it. You know, I, I remember even even uh, uh, my own grandmother um, talking about, um, you know, the, the people you put your hands on and the people you didn't, um, uh, you know, because the, 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 if illnesses had gone past a certain point, it was considered even dangerous for the healer to put their hands on them. Um, because at that stage, the illness could, could transfer to the healer or could... Um, uh, could sort of suck the energy out of the healer. Um, and uh, so all of those things were there in the ways of discerning it. You know, there were windows in which these things could be worked on. And then after that, it was a case of, well, you just pray for them now. That's all you can do, you know. There's a, a haunted spot not too far from me that mm. is known as Hexenkampf Rock, uh, which, right. is, which is it. And uh, mm. supposedly the, the reason it got haunted is that there were several powwow doctors in the area and mm. they, they would heal people. And in healing them, they felt they took on this negative energy, yeah. and they would go and they would cast it into this rock. That's, Absolutely, that's where they yeah. would put it. And the tradition handed down is is that that is why this area is, is haunted because yeah. so many of these powwow doctors have have put that that negativity into that. Rock. It's 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 almost a kind of a folk version of the stone tape theory. You know, the the, the idea that you can actually transfer and 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 draw. Um, negative uh, energies or sicknesses or whatever, and then you know deliberately transfer them into a place as opposed to just the the um, uh, place getting imprinted through through just um, huge emotion or huge trauma taking right. place in, in, in a situation, and and yeah, I mean that goes back to it's it's a very very ancient shamanic practice, isn't it? That idea of of being able to draw draw out what is uh, what is negative and and uh, you know whether whether sort of to uh, to suck it or to or to draw it out with the hands or whatever, and then um, to to get rid of it. You know, it has to go somewhere, and that's one of the interesting things. You'll generally find illness in in folklore has an underlying belief in a balance of things. So if even if it's a case of you not suffering it now, somebody has to suffer it. Somebody will hold it for a while, and that's why very often healers 
uh, were seen to be people who, who went through a lot of sickness and tragedy in their own lives. Uh, and that was very often seen as the kind of burden that they would have to bear to be the person who, who, who was able to sort of draw this stuff off. I believe Philip Smith spoke of that in the in the interview in episode 100 mm. about just feeling awful after, yeah. after doing powwow sometimes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was a kind of a rest period that was often recommended after these things uh, where somebody really had to kind of go away and kind of and be by themselves. And even even in our own tradition, uh, if somebody has been involved in, in a lot of um, the kind of uh, work that I was talking about earlier, dealing with, with places or people, there would normally be a long period of rest given to the person afterwards just to restore themselves. So before I let you go, I have to ask you about <laughs> Wild Man. Sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't encountered any of those. I assure, I assure you, Ireland is, is quite a small place, but we do have a very interesting fairy legend around around all of that, which is the Gruagach. And, and the Gruagach is... is, is um, uh, Gruaga in, in, in Gaelic and Irish is hair. So Gruagach is the hairy one. Um, and it was the idea that there was um, sometimes malevolent, sometimes trickstery, but it was seen definitely as one of the fairy kingdom um, and, and a kind of a spirit of the woods uh, or the forest um, was often used uh, used to trick people into getting lost and would be heard kind of um, chirping or whistling or laughing, but was often seen as either a big ball of hair or as a, a, a hairy small man that was sort of running around or, or, or kind of running into the woods, disappearing. Um, so that's the Gruaguk. So that certainly was was present. Yes. Um, and there were, there were ways of, of appeasing the Gruaguk, which was certain amounts of the fruit harvest would be left aside. Um, so you get that whole connection with the apples again, um, or with the, uh, the berries especially. And then you also had what was known as the puka, um, puck, the famous, the famous puck idea, uh, comes from the Gaelic puka, um, which was a fairy that appeared as either a tall, noble-looking man, a goat, a he-goat, a nasty he-goat that would that would chase people, um, or a hare or a rabbit. Um, so there's your there's your bunny man. Yes, um, I've, I've again. gotten quite a few puka comments. So there, there's the pukas. Oh, yes. um, and one of the interesting things, I mean, even when we were children, when the blackberries would appear on the on the uh, the briars and brambles in autumn, and and as kids we'd all go blackberry picking. Um, uh, once Halloween came, uh, whatever was left, even if the fruit looked beautiful, you left it alone because the puka's breath was on it then at that stage. In other words, they had been reserved. It, it had, whatever was left was reserved for the fairies, for, the, for, the, for them. Now, there is a real practical reason for that, which is very often they were filled with parasitic worms at that point. Mm. Um, so the legend, the legend is there. But, but it was very strong and... Uh, you know the, the the puka was not to be not to be messed with um, in any way, shape, or form. So uh, again, you have the the hairy man figure, the rabbit figure, the hare figure, all of that kind of stuff being um, being um, seen as as sort of uh, manifestations of the wild or manifestations of the land, and particularly demanding that certain places and certain um, you know certain parts of the harvest would be kept back or or given given back to the land. I've heard a couple uh, Gruagach stories mm. where they were given almost a wizard-like aspect. Yeah, yeah. Again, these things change form quite, quite. You know, depending on on, on where. So, I mean, that's that's one of the things about the the real sort of fairy idea in 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 the Irish um, culture, the Gaelic culture particularly, is that 
they can appear as in whatever way they wish to appear. And uh, there are a lot of legends of, of going seeking wisdom from these uh, mm-hmm. from these figures. Uh, so again, um, but it, it was always, you know, the, the stories always have a kind of a sting in the tail. You yes. know, um, you will receive the information, but it never really does does you good, or it, it it'll it'll twist in some tricksy way before before the end. Um, and again, there was that idea of, um, you know, that you never actually see the true form of the creature. Um, the old legend of the Hagstone, for example, the the the, the, the stone with a hole in it. Uh, carried for protection was was that idea that that you know you needed an instrument of some description to look through so as to kind of pierce the veil to see what this thing really was yes um and so children would be warned you know about never accepting um gifts never accepting food never accepting drink um in the older stories there was even you know not not telling your real name uh, or, or only giving your name if they gave their name first. You know all of the all of these kind of kind of uh, ideas of of being careful of not entering into um, uh, some kind of of bond with the with the the person concerned. But the Grugok was certainly known for magic and and the idea of transformation change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, all all of the stories that, of that, that I know that they're doing they're transforming into other creatures or mm-hmm. turning themselves into objects or you know whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there's there's great stories about people discovering, you know, stones in shoes or 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 um, uh, coins that they picked up along the way or things like that, and that these things become heavier and heavier and heavier, and that there's, you know, or that they bring a meal or a bad luck on the house or that that kind of idea, and then you suddenly discover that what you've actually brought home is a grugok rather than, um, uh, you know, the the uh, the treasure that you thought you had, um, you know, so that those those kind of uh, uh, things would be would be people would need to be very very careful about um, or beautiful animals even the idea of you know suddenly discovering you've a you've a, a beautiful bull in the field that that you never had before a lovely horse or whatever these can very often they would be regarded with suspicion because uh, you know if you didn't know where they came from then the chances were uh, they were something that might have a hidden price to pay. So the the stones in the shoe idea just just sparked something for me. Um, okay. I know I said I was going to let you go, but I, I no, gotta, feel free, I, feel free, don't worry. The idea of trading, um, mm. I'm sure you've heard uh, me talk about it. With you know, what may or may not be big. For, I don't know what it is, but the, sure, the idea of leaving an object mm. of some significance. It's you mm-hmm. know it's not a hundred dollar bill, but it's you know maybe something that mean, meant something to me, a, a pretty rock I found in a special place sure. or something like that, and coming back later, and it's mm-hmm. it's either gone, or it's moved, or something mm-hmm. else has been added, you know. Sure. And uh, I guess my question would be, this is so, sort of a remote trading game, right? And it, yeah. And it yeah. feels safer than a direct interaction. Yeah. What yeah. would your thoughts be on that? I guess I would say as long as it's done with with humor, and as long as you're not asking for anything, mm-hmm. I wouldn't see any any problem with it. Um, I think it's just a case of observation. I was intrigued by the story you told about the kind of cairn that you were were building, the sort of playing chess with mm-hmm. with with whatever it was, and that it all finished the day that you bled yes. onto it. Yes. Um. That 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 to my mind, was very significant uh, because the withdrawal of the other party, let's call it that, whatever whatever it was or whatever it is, you know, bleeding over something uh, was one of the very ancient ways of marking something as your own, in, including land. 
um, you know, the, the, again, go back to my story of the, the gentleman saying, you know, the trees wanted their blood that day right. um, because the guy had been angry in the forest. Um, so it was kind of, it was sort of a retributive idea there. So, I mean, obviously, I don't know. I'm only guessing based on, on, on the, the sort of the, the, the knowledge or the tradition of the stories. But to my mind, that may have felt to the other side, like you were saying, this is all mine now. Mm. Um, you know, uh, because I've I've bled over it. I've literally, you know, marked it in some way, shape, or form uh, with with a and and biological fluids generally um, tend to be seen as as things that are are very high in in um, uh, presence, spiritual energy. You know, all of all of that kind of idea. Particularly, obviously, blood. I mean, you know, it's 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 all the way through all of the religions and all of the traditions. The idea that that. That blood is something extremely sacred and powerful, but I think where where there are those sort of, you know, general offerings, general presencing, but without looking for things to come back. I think it's when people become obsessed with with um, with things that that you're then, in some way, shape, or form, giving the other side a kind of a an authority or a power that it shouldn't have. So uh, uh, one of the one of the the principles that I was certainly trained in was that anything that is given can be welcomed and used, but should always be given away oh. uh, eventually. Um, so in other words, you, you don't possess it. Um, you simply hold it for a while and give it away, even if that's only giving it back to the land. Right. But eventually it is returned. It's given away, passed on. Oh, that's very interesting. Mm. And, and I will say, when I ask for things is when I got in trouble. Well, there 100%. we go. Uh, that, yeah. that checks a box with me. I, I mean, completely. Uh, mm. it, was, it was not good. <laughs> so I, I think there's a certain sense where, when this begins to 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 even in a, even in a kindly way, um, pay attention to us, or more attention than we're used to. One of the the difficulties can be when we seem to sort of um, uh, change the rules or or begin to begin to demand things of it. At that point, you know, there, there's a very ancient principle that that says um, the difference between prayer and magic is is that that prayer is saying um, let thy will be done, whereas magic is saying let my will be done. And uh, I think we get told very quickly um, that that once we start saying let my will be done, that that we're we're <laughs> we're we're in a relationship with something that is far bigger. Um, and 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 uh, far greater and far older than than uh, than our will necessarily allows. It is a massive ego that thinks they can control it. Maybe so. Maybe yeah. so. Yeah. And we all know how those fairy tales end. You know. Right. <laughs> so right. so it's, and and I'm, it, I mean I'm guilty of that myself. You know I mean I, well I, 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 I think, the hard I think way. we we all are to some extent. I think every human being is to some extent. Every human being starts off with with a certain. Um, ego level or narcissistic level that 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 life itself generally generally just life events teach us that we are not the center of the universe. Um, we did an old teacher years ago. He used to say that the definition of an adolescent was someone who still believes the sun gets up in the morning because that's when they're awake. Hmm. But, uh, an adult is someone who begins to recognize that that um, creation um, loves you and wants you to be part of it. Um, but at the same time, if you decide uh, to to try and go against it, you'll be put in your place fairly quickly. That's been my experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mine. I, I, I say I got my butt smacked, and I I, I did. I, I uh, you know, and I think you're right. I think I got a little too serious about it. I got a little too deep into it, and mm. 
I mean, there well, are the, the there explicit thing, rules in folklore about it. Absolutely. And, 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 and one, of the, one, the rules. Of, one of the classical rules is that we don't get to make the rules. Yes. Um, yes. And, and I think that's one of the things. Once you begin to have people who say, this is the way it should be done. This is the way um, that, that, that you will always get results. This is It's precisely at that moment that everything changes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think we just simply have to be, um, when we are dealing with these things, I think, uh, taking into account the principles we mentioned earlier, remaining earthed, remaining remaining focused on the human, that is the level we are at, that is what we should be. Um, and when we do have interactions with the spiritual world or with the other, as you would call it, um, that we do so in a kind of a respectful and at the same time uh, discerning, discerning way. Brother Richard, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been amazing for me. Thank you. And I, I must, can I just thank you as well for, for the podcasts? They've been great. I've, I've really enjoyed them. It's been, it's, it's always good to, to, to hear all of these, these wonderful, wonderful stories from, from so many different people and so in so many diverse ways. So, um, uh, yeah, you, you can, you can be, um, glad to know that, that your stories have certainly made it into the monastery. So there, awesome. <laughs> so there you are. <laughs> that is awesome. Well, will you there come you back are. on sometime? I'd love to have I'd, you I'd be on. delighted to anytime. No problem at all. Awesome. No problem. Well, thank you once again. You're most welcome. Thanks a lot, Tim. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you like what we're doing here at Strange Familiars and you'd like to help us continue to make content, you could become a patron at Patreon. That's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. There are all different levels of support there, but at just $3 a month, you get extra shows. We do at least one extra show every month for our patrons. We try to do more than that, and we give them special offers besides. You can check out all the levels of support at Patreon. Again, that's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. And of course, I want to thank our patrons, because without them, we could not do Strange Familiars. Our patrons are keeping this show afloat. So thank you so much, patrons. Thanks for all you do. If you'd like to support us and you don't like the idea of a monthly subscription like Patreon, in the show notes for every episode at strangefamiliars.com, you can find a paypal.me link where you can make a one-time donation. Of course, that helps a great deal as well. And of course, everyone can help by sharing the show on social media, liking and subscribing wherever you're listening, and leaving us those nice five-star reviews, which help get the podcast in front of new potential listeners. We will be back soon with another episode of Strange Familiars. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, music, books, art, podcasts, and more. DarkHollerArts.com Intro and background music is by Stonebreath. Go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com for more, where you can also find Wildnessgeist. We are on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars, where you can join the Strange Familiars Gathering Group, and we are on Instagram, at strangefamiliars. Hey, Tim. My name is Connor, and I've told this story on the confessionals with Tony before a few years back, probably about three years back from this point. Um, so I had a really interesting encounter. I was wondering if maybe uh, 
you can use this on your podcast. We tried to interview before, but uh, due to scheduling complications, I wasn't able to make it happen. So I figured, as you say on your podcast all the time, this is probably the best, easiest way for me to just get my story out there. So I wonder if your listeners can uh, you know, offer some insight and maybe help me figure out what, what happened. I personally think that it, it was somewhat of an uh, evil or kind of demonic encounter that happened to me when I was in high school. So I was a senior in high school. I was uh, on my way home from a date with my girlfriend. I was shopping her off at home. We were in the driveway in my car uh, at her house. And so we were just kind of talking and chatting and uh, just hanging out before uh, we said goodbye. And I just got this, like, overwhelming feeling when I was in the car of uh, just there's there's somebody else here, but I knew it was just me and my girlfriend. But I just felt like there was something else here. Um, and so I kind of looked in my rearview mirror of this really old 1985 BMW that my dad gave me for my first car. So I looked in the rearview mirror, and I saw this dark figure, Dark figure had long black hair, like jet black hair, kind of curly, really wet. Looks really similar to the character in the, the movie The Ring. Um, only I had never seen that movie because scary movies terrified me and I'm a wuss and I can't handle them. So I saw this figure in the back and her eyes were like black. Um, and it kind of, like some of the features were just very distorted, you know. It almost looked like she didn't have a nose or uh, a mouth. Her nose was very small. There was almost not like a sewn shut mouth, but just like no mouth at all. And um, she was just looking at, at me. And I turned to my girlfriend, who were both, we were both Christians uh, at the time. So I turned to my girlfriend at the time. We're not dating anymore. But I turned to her and I said, um, hey, I know this sounds really weird, but I just am getting the sense that something weird is uh, in my car, so we need to get out of my car right now. She's like, okay, uh, that's fine. Yeah.
it match the rhythm Oh, gently For those with ears to hear And eyes to see This is no war They are Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.